Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first. What's astonishing Me you? Me first with all of my nasal issues today. Um, let's see. Oh, at Dorado Church, I can remember the name of my church for a second. At Dorado Church, in our list of core values is the uh, value of being spirit-led. And uh, I know that sounds like it ought to be a given for a church, right? A church seeking to be spirit-led, duh. Um, but we realize, you know, our own tendency to fall back on our own intellect, thinking, desires. And so it's Power, important for us, yes. opinion, preferences. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's important for us to name that value of being spirit-led, led by the Holy Spirit. Because um, in Scripture, the Spirit often leads people places they don't want to go. Correct. Um, and, you know, frankly... You don't know what you don't know. You don't know everything. You can't see around right. every corner. And so you must be led by the Spirit. And I got a lesson in that just yesterday. Um, as you know, our listeners don't know this, but you know this because you and I talked about it. Um, at the end of recording our last podcast, I expressed to you my anxiety um, about our angel tree um, at Dorita Church. We are adopting a hotel near the church, about a mile and a half away from the church. Um, this church has a lot of families who can't uh, afford an apartment or a home, and so they are living uh, in this hotel. And, you know, side note, affordable housing is a real issue. You know, when you're asked to pay first month and last month's rent and, you know, utilities and and a security deposit it is it is difficult for families and so we have a number of families living in hotels near the church and uh, there are three hotels that are just filled with children whose families are living in these hotels and so we're one of three congregations that has adopted one of these hotels to um, serve the children um, and provide gifts um, this Christmas so we have this angel tree up, and, and I expressed to you my anxiety that we would be able to uh, fulfill all the requests. I think we have about 15 or 16 children, and, you know, these days we're averaging, you know, 25 or so people in worship. You know, we have a small gathering, and so I said to you um, at the end of our last recording, you know, we, we may need some help um, in doing this, and... Uh, there was one particular request that I was concerned about. Uh, a child asked for a gaming system mm -hmm. uh, that I know costs, you know, several hundred dollars. And um, my impulse was just to do it myself. Mm -hmm. I was going to, I was like, no one's going to pick this. My family's going to do it. And the Lord would not let me take it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the last one on the board, on the angel tree on Sunday. And I said, well, I'll just do it. And I had zero peace about it. Like just that sense of God saying no. Mm -hmm. And it bothered me. I was like, well, this child is not going to get the thing that they asked for. And it just bothered me for days. And yesterday... I got a call from someone who is not a member of the church, someone who has been worshiping with us um, probably for about five months, and uh, she called, and I know she doesn't have a lot of extra money, but she called me and said, um, I want you to know that I left a check for you to buy this gift that this child wants, and... Um, <laughs> And I realized immediately, oh, that's why the Lord would not mm -hmm. let me take it. Mm -hmm. and, and I could, I understood then, you know. Um, and what really moved me was then this woman began to share with me why, why she was buying this gift. And she very clearly said, God wants me to do this. God wants me to do this. And she said it several times. And then she said, and here's why. And she said, when my kids were growing up, we could not afford a lot of things. I remember, she said, um, wanting to get them computers and other technology things, and we just couldn't afford it. And I remember 
thinking, oh, my kids are missing out. My kids are falling behind. And we just couldn't provide those things. And she said, now my kids are grown and I can do this for some other child. Mm -hmm. And I was moved, one, you know, by her generosity, again, because I know she doesn't have a lot of extra money, but also just seeing the hand of God in it, right? Preventing me from just taking it out of my own fear and anxiety, because mm -hmm. that's what it was, but also giving this woman an opportunity mm -hmm. to do this um, in a way that I think provided her um, a kind of healing, a kind of, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, just, I just sense the spirit at work in very deep and powerful ways. And so I'm, I'm just astonished by that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's so, um, I mean, I, what I think is so beautiful about that story and really powerful is your faithfulness in really listening to that very counterintuitive voice and recognizing that as the voice of the spirit that you think, you know, oh, of course Jesus would want me to do this, right? And so to not take that that card and to not make that commitment to buy that gift, to not be generous towards the child, like that can't be coming from the Holy Spirit. And I, I think it's so tricky as a pastor all the time to figure out, like, when are you leading? When are you standing in the gap? And when are you actually being unfaithful and operating in pride and anxiety and robbing people in the community of the chance to be the body of Christ. Yes. And I think that's just so hard. I think especially for pastors um, like us who have been on a transformation journey where there's just been a lot of times where, you, you know, you really... I think maybe I, maybe I'm always wrong. It's always a possibility, but you, where you've really had to just sort of very much like get in there and no job is too small and no, you know, and just to say like, we, we can do this and I'm going to go first and I, you know, but I wonder sometimes if I, you know, people used to talk about, oh, don't over function as a pastor. And I used to think that that sounded, mm, I don't know lazy and well, well, I heard that coming from a place of privilege. Oh, you don't have to overfunction. Right, because you have all of this, that and the other. But I do think, you know, it's just really hard to figure out what that looks like. Even just to sort of give some space because um I think you didn't have to if you had taken that angel off the tree, you would have made that decision for forever. No one else could take it. But by leaving it there you created some space that was uncomfortable for you, but possible for someone else to stand in the gap and do that. And I think, you know, we talk a lot in preaching about how we don't, it's not our job to protect people from scripture and from the sort of challenging and uncomfortable things that scripture puts in front of us. And I also think, you know, the same can be said of ministry opportunities that sometimes we just step in and handle something when it's important to create some space for others um, to step into this really amazing and beautiful life that we have. Like I know I was thinking about it um, with sort of some of the Advent preparations that we've done. And part of it is just a function of the, I, I feel like the Grove is always, uh, I don't know, it's always a pot that isn't boiling and then is about to overflow. It's like goes from one extreme to another. And so sometimes you just don't, um, you know, you, you kind of don't recognize there's a need until it's really urgent. But I also think, and, and as a pastor, you do have the privilege of like, I don't have another job I have to do. Like this is the place where I can focus my professional time and energy and other people in the congregation don't, don't have that privilege that the congregation has given us. And so I think it's just really hard to know where that line is when it's appropriate to say, Hey, I want to step in as a servant leader and lift this burden or handle this task. And when it's important to let something sit out there and be undone and unsolved. And, um, and I think that's really difficult discernment work, um, to not do something that you could do and sit with the discomfort of that and sit with, sort of what it might reveal to the congregation if no one takes that card 
how what's you know what is the culture in the congregation what kind of story are people going to tell about that and just sort of trust I mean it's one of our guiding principles that you know we practice healthy spiritual discomfort and sometimes I think our what we want is for people to have just sort of exhilarating and edifying and you know deep comfort um from their spirituality and that is part of it and sometimes we grow and heal and change out of discomfort yeah as i was standing in front of that angel tree display trying to decide whether or not to take that particular card one of the things that was very clear to me was my why like i knew i was only taking it out of fear and anxiety Mm -hmm. i could not say if someone in that moment had asked me why i was doing it if i had said oh god wants me to do this I was very conscious in that moment that I would have been lying through my teeth, right? I just, I, I, I had zero sense that God wanted me to do this. I had a lot of, of feelings that God wanted this child served. Um, God wanted to, this gift to go to this child. But um, I knew that I, my motives were not right. Well, and I think it's interesting just when we were talking, like you began the conversation of saying one of our, core principles is being led by the spirit, which is also one of ours. We seek to be led by the Holy spirit. That's one of our guiding principles. And we were talking about that seems obvious. And I mean, obviously theoretically, yes, every church, but I mean, it's too often that we say like, Oh, well, when I do what I'm supposed to do, that is how the church gets led by the spirit. When I, you know, when I give my best ideas and my best effort, and when I do, when I'm responsible, that's how, the Holy Spirit leads the church, which is ridiculously untrue, right? Um, but I do wonder how often, like just, you know, we've talked before about how just changing the question can lead to such different um, paths of discernment. And I think a lot of times when there is a problem or an opportunity or a challenge in the church, I think unconsciously my question is always, is this my responsibility? Which is a very different question from, is the Holy Spirit calling me to do this, right? And and I, I mean, that's helpful because I don't even think if I had been looking at that card, I think I would have been thinking, okay, is anyone else likely to do this? Do, do How many other people have the capacity to do this? And is it my responsibility as the pastor to do this on behalf of the church? And all of those are very different questions from, is the Holy Spirit calling me to do this? Um, so yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. So what's astonishing you? Uh, well, I mean, kind of related, um, there's a, um, an organization in Charlotte that I really, um, deeply honor. And I, I think the Holy Spirit is doing amazing things, um, in this group. It's called uh, Freedom Fighting Missionaries and it's led by a man named Kenny Robinson, who, um, I just think has, has a very anointed ministry to serve folks, um, who have been imprisoned and, um, he, he actually has a, a really um, interesting event that's coming up at the Mint Museum on December 6th um, that's a photo exhibit. And he, um, a local artist, an amazing photographer, has been taking portraits of all, all the people who've been playing key roles in his organization. And the name of the exhibit, and I might not be getting exactly getting this exactly right, but it, it's some version of the underground railroad and his premises. And it really makes sense when you sit with it for a second that like, I mean, obviously literally in the 13th amendment, slavery is still permissible in, in when people are incarcerated. And we know that the recidivism rate is so high and that the systems are not set up to rehabilitate folks. Like that is just not, it's not that people don't ever get rehabilitated in prisons, Um, some people really do manage to change their lives, but that is in spite of the system, not because of it. Um, but I think we often look at those exceptional people and say, oh, see, this works if you, if you want it to work. And I think that's not true. I think some exceptional people can rehabilitate themselves in spite of all of the obstacles and setups, but the system is set up not for rehabilitation, but for recidivism because there's just a lot of economic incentives, not to mention structural racism that just makes that be the case. Um, and Kenny Robinson has this organization that helps people, um, 
when they finish their sentences, get the tools and support they need to become self-sufficient in society. And that's, you know, people want, I mean, it depends on your fundamental premise. If your fundamental premise is there are just a lot of people who are terrible people and they're dangerous and they need to be controlled and we need to choose their lives for them and make them work in prison because they can never be productive members of society. Like if that's what you think about people, then, then it doesn't make sense to try and give people tools. Um, but if what you think as I do is that the reality is people are made in the image of God and are really have intrinsically, um, gifts to offer our society and the capacity and capability and desire, um, to be healthy and, um, whole, then you offer people support because you believe that it's possible and you believe not only that it's good for them, but that it's good for you and the whole um, community for folks to be successful in transitioning. And, you know, it's very hard not to go back to prison if you can't get a job because you have to check the box. If you cannot find a place to live because A, we're already in affordable housing crisis and B, nobody has to um, rent to someone who has a criminal record and many of the supported housing opportunities in the city. So section eight pu public housing, um, it is actually, if you, you not only can you not as the leaseholder be someone with a criminal record, but you can't have anyone live with you who has a criminal record or else you lose your housing. Correct. So that means that when you come out of prison, unless you are sort of middle-class and above, so you have a a family member who has their own mortgage and their own home, um, you, you are not, it's illegal for you to have a place to live. Um, and so if you then are on the streets, it's really hard not to get arrested when you're living on the streets. And we have systems that are set up to criminalize people for living in poverty in the sense that like, you can't use the bathroom, you can't loiter, like you can't just exist anyway. So Kenny, is working to help folks and his organization there, you know, and, and also a lot of people are released on electronic monitoring. It is really hard not to violate your parole when you are released with an electronic monitoring ankle bracelet, because if you can't charge that, then even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're going to be in violation. If it, man, if it, if it malfunctions and they do, then you as the person on parole are in violation. Even if you, it, it has malfunctioned. It, re, it doesn't report where you are. You're in violation. If you don't have reliable transportation, you can, I mean, there's just all kinds of ways that it's very difficult, um, to not end up, um, reoffending. And I'm not even talking about being so desperate that you would say commit a robbery. I'm just saying like not being able to charge your electronic bracelet, not being able to get to work because the buses are cut. anyway cut and it, it's just really difficult you have to do everything perfectly it's a dance it's really hard and um, Kenny and his organization help people with court support they help um, connect people with employers who are willing to hire them they try to help people find housing which is incredibly incredibly difficult um, and the event that he has set up is called the, the the Underground Railroad or the Modern Underground Railroad, just sort of saying, like drawing that connection to just as there had to be an, a designed system to free people from slavery um, institutionally in the past, there has to be the same sort of um, design to get people out of the recidivism um, slavery loop that exists now. And there's lots of resistance to that. Um, and so, but they, for the, today we're recording on what has become known as Giving Tuesday. And every organization that you know is sort of sending out notes and saying like, hey, look at us, we're good, you know, please support us. And, you know, and most of them are really, really important. But he, I just noticed that he had put something on social media saying like, hey, we're not doing that this year, because for the past three years that we've tried, it's just been so disheartening to see that all of the nonprofits that are raising money for animals. <laughs> so, you know, the humane society and other places just outfund us, you know, 10, 20, 30 times. And, you know, it's just, it's devastating to see, you know, what feels like worth, like a worthy concern to, the majority of the um, population and that 
you know, helping animals feels like something a lot of people want to give their money to and helping people trying to not go back to prison doesn't. And that that's just really heartbreaking. And um, I really just grieve that, especially for those of us who claim to be Christians, when there's such um, a strong and specific emphasis on the good news of the gospel being good news to the prisoners and good news to the oppressed, that we don't feel any kind of visceral identification with folks who um, are navigating um, the prison system. And we should. I mean, we serve, you know, the the God who is about to be born, the God whose birth we are about to celebrate, died as a prisoner of the state, was um, executed by the state. So we, of all the other people on the face of the earth, ought to understand how these um, secular systems are destructive. And I'm not saying I want to live in anarchy. I don't. I'm not saying that I, I mean, I will say I don't believe in democracy. I don't believe in capitalism. I believe in just in Jesus. But I understand that democracy and capitalism are, I think, as far as I know, probably the least destructive systems that exist, but I do not think in and of themselves they are sacred or righteous. I think they depend upon people in those systems, understanding the sacredness of other humans and practicing righteousness, which for me is displayed in scripture and the commands from the Mosaic covenant through the Sermon on the Mount to say those with power are, are, um, when you use power in a godly way, it's on behalf of the most vulnerable, not to protect yourself from them and not to commodify them, but to, um, care for and support and be good news to folks who, um, are being destroyed by the powerful. And so, you know, I'm just, I, I don't even, I'm not surprised. I get frustrated about the humane society all the time. I understand that people love their pets. I just want people to love other people as much as they love their pets. And I think it's partly, you know, um, one manifestation of how little healthy community there is in our culture that people um, are so tribalized and so separated um, that they are more likely to see the intrinsic good and worthiness of an animal than another human because we see other humans as as threats. We see other humans as um, disposable and we see other humans as more worthy for what they can produce or what they can do for us. But we, we are delight in giving unconditional love to animals. And I just it's just heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking for me to see this good and righteous work that I think that Kenny is doing that I, I wish, you know, we just recently was watching somebody in his organization trying to raise $3,000 to get a housing department for a deposit for a woman who has lost two sons to murder. And, you know, over the Thanksgiving holiday, they were just fundraising and fundraising and fundraising for, you know, just to get that $3,000, which is a lot of money, except that it's really not a lot of money. And to your point, like $3,000 is what makes the difference between somebody being able to be in an apartment um, or live in a hotel, right? Like it's that deposit. And, you know, we can't invest in that. But, you know, an, another friend pointed this out to me that, you know, there's the terrible tragedy last week in Charlotte where a news helicopter crashed and um, a very beloved on on camera weather man died. And it's a tragedy. And someone did a GoFundMe for his family. And the goal was $15,000. And they raised like $250,000 for this family. And I'm just incredibly sorry for what has happened to that family. And they have a safety net. And I feel so sad that we have so much compassion for like that our compassion has become a scarce commodity and that the amount of money that we can give to that family can't, I mean, to show solidarity with them really matters. 
but can't bring their loved one back, but we can't come up with $3,000 to help this woman who is grieving an incredible loss just find a stable place to live so that she can be self-sufficient. Like that's just heartbreaking for me. And I don't begrudge any good thing that comes to the family of the man who died in the helicopter crash, of the men who died in the helicopter crash. I don't begrudge that to them, but I do just wish that we didn't have such blinders in terms of whose pain mattered to us and whose pain we just accept as kind of inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that often our compassion is based upon a moral judgment. Right? If we deem someone worthy, then we will show compassion. I heard a story recently, and I don't know if I told you this already, but um, someone shared this with me, uh, I think about three or four months ago, that they were um, in a conversation with um, someone in the congregation they're serving, and this person works for an animal clinic uh, in uh, an affluent part of our city. And in this animal clinic, there's a a woman, uh, an immigrant from Haiti there. And I believe she may be the receptionist or something like that. Uh, But um, a client came in and um, her dog needed some procedures um, that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And this client had no problem paying. And uh, this woman from... Haiti was um, she's very emotional and she went to another part of the clinic and she just cried and so my friend whose church member is telling him the story talked to this woman from Haiti and asked what was you know what was bothering her what you know why was she crying and this woman from Haiti said what that woman paid to help her dog would have fed the people in my village for months and months and months. Um, and it's that kind of, of gap between the, the compassion we show for people and the compassion we show for our pets that, that is um, just very disturbing. Yeah, and I just, I, I think that some people would be listening to this and say, okay, but the animal can't take care of itself and people should be able to take care of themselves. And I definitely agree that that is the American myth, that the American myth is we'll just make everybody free. And once everyone is free, they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and take care of themselves. And that's, you know, that's the only promise that we make is we will make you free and then you can take care of yourself. First of all, that's just not what happens. (laughs) Um, Certainly not around the world and certainly not in this country, but um, not everyone has you know, the same amount of rights or freedoms, period, end of story. A lot of people are wildly successful because they get a lot of systemic help and a lot of people are um, perceived to be unsuccessful at caring for themselves because there are just a lot of um, ways that systems are are set up to, um, to put up uh, burdens and blockers in front of them. So that's not what happens. But I do agree that that is the American myth, the American dream. It is not the message of Christianity. It is not the message of scripture. Like it is not biblical um, spirituality. And the, and the message of scripture, I think from Genesis to Revelation is that we are saved um, for community, we are saved in community. We are set apart to be community and we are not meant to be sufficient as to be independent. Like that is not the goal. Um, the goal is not freedom. The goal is shalom, mutual interdependent flourishing. And so that's just a world that's, that's a clash between the American worldview and the Christian worldview. And I think too many people have just tried to smooth that away. And certainly in the Christian nationalism movement, people are explicitly saying that, that, that is what the Bible wants. And it's just a lie. It's a lie from the beginning when God says it is not good for a man to be alone. When you see the choice that one human makes in the garden alter, you know, alter the entire face of creation. And when you see, you know, God choosing Abram not to say, all right, I choose you and now you choose me back. And so I'm going to reward you, but to say like, no, I'm going to make you 
the father of a mighty nation and through your nation, all other nations will be blessed. Like the, the connectionalism and interdependence and community is, and you know, even God, God, God's self is both one and triune, right? I mean, the sense that like we, I mean, the Ubuntu, like I am because we are that, that God is, um, complete and whole in community. And that's our model. So just to sort of fundamentally name that there is a conflict of worldviews between the American myth and the revelation of scripture. And we need to know that and we need to navigate that as resident aliens. And then the other thing that I you said that I think is just really important to name is I think you're completely correct that we have been taught that we should show compassion to, towards people when when we feel like they are morally innocent, right? I mean, down to the point that you have people talking all the time when they're talking about abortion legislation that like abortion is wrong unless it's a case of rape or incest, which is explicitly saying, well, people who have sex when they shouldn't have, they have to carry out a pregnancy because that's what they deserve. That's the consequence of their actions. But people who become pregnant through no fault of their own, well, they should be able to have access to an abortion. I I mean, I believe um, that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And I believe that abortion is a tragedy. But I also believe that, um, you know, that any, that that's a tragedy regardless of the circumstances of the, um, act of procreation that, you know, it's not like the life of the potential life of a child conceived in incest has less moral weight than the life of a child conceived, uh, you know, after a drunken date night or just in a committed relationship between people who don't want to have children, like all, you know, but I do think it just shows how lots of people feel like, oh, I'm against abortion unless it's in case of rape or incest, because in rape or incest, it's not the mother's fault. And so I can show compassion to what she wants, which I'm not, don't have to do if I feel like the person is at fault. And we show compassion. We give compassion as a reward for righteousness. And again, that's the American way, but it is absolutely counterintuitive to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the astonishing thing and the stumbling block about Jesus is that Jesus has compassion on sinners, right? Now, I, if that offends you, like come sit next to me because it often offends me too. But the truth is, it's just clear that that is what God came to reveal, that God has compassion and shows mercy to the just and the unjust. Um, and that's that's hard. Like that's hard to really, once you believe that and and see it and really carry it out to its logical conclusions and recognize that the sinners God has compassion on, it's not just people who don't turn their library books in on time, but people who do truly horrific and destructive things like that offends a lot of people. And it offends a lot of people within the body of Christ. But I mean, that's just the truth. As Christians, we have compassion for people who are suffering unjustly and for people who are suffering justly because that's what our Lord has. And so if we don't like it, we can be honest about that. We can wrestle about that. But what we can't say is that Jesus only has compassion upon righteous, innocent people because that's not true. Yes, and you can read the scriptures and miss that. Mm -hmm. You can read it in such a way that you're just blind to the point that you just made. One of the things in the Christmas story that surprises me every year, and it shouldn't at this point, but every year it surprises me um, that, um, you know, when we put out our nativity scenes there, you know, the angel and Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger, and uh, you've got the magi coming, and then you have shepherds. And when the angels announce the birth of the Messiah, the angels go to the shepherds who were considered lowlifes in the first century. Um, these, these were not people of, um, they, they did not receive the compassion of, of the society. I've been reading um, the book Decolonizing Christianity yeah. by Miguel uh, De La Torre. Uh, I believe he's um, uh, at Denver Seminary. And uh, one of the things he says in the introduction to that book is, 
uh, that the American church really has a hard time with this Roman Catholic idea of God's um, preferential option uh, for the the poor, poor. Mm -hmm. that if your eyes are open, uh, if you do a slow reading of scripture, you will see that in many ways, God chooses the poor, not only for God's um, compassion and salvation, but to work through. And the shepherds um, are an example of that. And it just goes to your point about um, how, again, how we assign moral uh, value. Well, and I think, you know, it's also just this idea, this that is a hangover from the enlightenment. I think that everything is binary. Right. And so we just feel like, well, if I'm going to show, I can only show compassion towards some people. And, you know, we, we naturally as fallen humans believe in scarcity. We believe that I can't, you know, I can't show compassion towards everyone. And we believe that compassion has to be rationed. We believe that grief has to be rationed. Like, I think it's really interesting when people are struggling with something often when they are in pain, what people want to say before they can talk about their pain is like, well, I know that I don't have it that bad, or I know I shouldn't feel this way, or I know other people have it worse as if like, I I don't have a right to feel sad. I don't have a right to this pain. I just want to be like, look, there is you know, an abundance of pain and there is also an abundance of compassion and showing compassion to a persecutor does not limit your ability to show compassion to the persecuted, right? And it's really about believing, understanding that it is better to be for the oppressed than to be for the oppressor, right? And so in a lot of ways in the current fallen world, we, we tend to blame the oppressed for their oppression, right? Like that's just how it works. And so it is better. It is a step. It is the step John the Baptist was leading us on to say like, let's not be celebrating the oppressor. Let's be for the oppressed. But Jesus was taking it one hugely offensive step further and saying like, let's end this system of having to be for some and against others. Let's find um, find a new way, the narrow way of saying there is a way that we don't have to be against some to be for others. Like let's be peacemakers and peacemakers don't take a side. They tell the truth, yes, but they don't take a side. And they say there is a way that we can um, find, you know, I was just, we were preaching Isaiah two that says, you know, the nations say like, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord and let us worship at the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways. And, and the Lord will speak to us and the Lord will teach us his ways and we will walk in his ways. And then it says that God will, what does it say, mediate among the nations. Yes. God will settle mm-hmm. disputes among the nations. So it's not that all of a sudden everything magically disappears. It's not that there isn't still conflict. It's just that there is a way that God can resolve conflict without rejecting people or persons, right? That there is a way to move forward in peace where somebody doesn't have to lose for somebody to win, but there can be real resolution. There can be real healing. There can be real reconciliation, which does not have to involve destruction or punishment. Although I understand that if you believe in a hierarchical world and if you can't be okay unless someone else is not okay, then this way forward with God might feel like death to you, right? Like it might be that you want to go out to the outer circles of darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth because you want to go back to the old way where you were on top and others were on the bottom. I understand that, but I think the reality is the offensively beautiful revelation of Christ is that every tear shall be wiped away, right? And and that's hard. It's hard on people who have to bear their guilt. And it is also incredibly hard. And I, you know, for people who have to say, are you serious that I'm supposed to worship a God who calls me to forgive my oppressor? I don't want to. I mean, like, I get it. I shouldn't have to. I get it. I, I mean, I... I, I I understand that, but it, it, as I read scripture, it, it, it appears to me that there is no, that is the way of the Lord. It's not our way, but it is the way of the Lord. 
I was, um, I don't know if I said this last time we recorded, but uh, I was listening to an interview with um, Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. and um, he was talking about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and he was um, recalling conversations with um, black South Africans who just did not want to forgive. They were struggling with forgiving their white oppressors and, you know, saying things, do you not know, do you not remember what they did to us? And he stayed in conversation with them and then he just talks about how, how amazing it was to see God change their hearts to bring them to a place of forgiveness. It, it was a struggle. Right. And I do think like we have to be careful about our language mm-hmm. because I, I don't, no one has to forgive anyone. Like, you know, I, and no human is owed another person's forgiveness. I mean, it has to be grace. It has to be a free choice. Mm-hmm. It has to be, or else it's worthless. It's not real. So can't force it. you can't force it. And I think a lot of times the church, and often has, I mean, as we talk about siding with the oppressors against the oppressed, has, you know, people ha- have perpetrated great injustice against other people. And then when that's finally come to light, it, you know, people have turned grace into a weapon and said, well, you just have to forgive us. And the reality is that's not how it works. And at that point, it becomes, let, let's keep the system in place. Right. But let's pretend like nothing has ever happened. We're all good. Right. right. I mean, it's a it's a new way forward that without every, changing anything. Right. Well, and I would say like when this mutuality of interdependence and forgiveness and mutual and mutual submission requires being on a path to a new way forward where everyone can flourish. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to stay in the same place where we were and nothing's going to change, but you just have to forgive me, then it's, it's signing up for another cycle of even even if there's a there's a chance for people to switch chairs and now the people who are historically oppressed become oppressors like that that's not I mean I I think you know it's an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth but it, that is not the way of Christ which is a higher which is a higher revelation and I again I feel like when people are offended by it and I'm people that's when I feel like okay well now we're finally seeing it. Um, now, I mean, at least we are beginning to grapple with the um, magnitude yeah. of the revelation of the offensiveness of the cross, right? Because yeah. too often we're just like, "Oh yeah, Jesus loves everybody." Ah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I just feel like you're not you're not seeing it yet, unless you're really deeply troubled, unless you're like John the Baptist, being like, "Are you are you really the Messiah, or should we just?" wait, wait for another, um, who's going to come in and really just clean house. Um, anyway, we're, we're, we're an hour in friend. I I don't know if we should just wrap this one today. Sure. I mean, we should, right? Like we've talked about literally everything. Well, what are you preaching this Sunday? I am preaching about the smoldering wick, the bruised reed, and the astonishing tenderness of Jesus Christ. Except, no, the cataclysmic tenderness of Jesus Christ. And I think it is related, right? This yeah. idea that... Absolutely. Right? That yes. Jesus comes and says, I am not here to extinguish the smoldering wicks. I am not here to burn the bruised reeds. I I am here um, for mercy and tenderness to those who do deserve it and also to those who don't. And that is just, um, it, it is, it's one of those things that we, we say it so quickly that we don't actually revel in what it means. And I think if you perceive yourself as an innocent person, if you perceive yourself as a, as a person who is whole by their own virtue, then, you know, that doesn't sound like good news. Um, but if you are a person who really understands um, themselves to not be worthy of forgiveness and righteousness and salvation, if you are a person who really carries um, real grief for 
sin and a real longing for um, repentance and salvation, then that's incredibly good news. If, if you are someone who really sort of operates already in righteousness, then that feels like, um, you know, you just, your response honestly is going to be no fair. Like why should people get what they don't deserve? Right. right. Mm-hmm. So but what about you? What are you preaching on this week? Well, I'm not sure. I, I have been thinking about um, the same text that you're thinking about, um, but also, you know, I've been reading the traditional texts for this second Sunday in Advent and um, it is uh, the, the gospel reading is John the Baptist mm-hmm. and it, I'm asking the question, why is John the Baptist in my Christmas story? I mean, John the Baptist is so odd. And I was reading the text again, um, and I saw something for the first time. Again, I've been doing this for years, and I'm seeing this for the first time, that when John, well, first of all, John is out in the wilderness in, you know, locusts, wild honey, and he's preaching, and People from all over are going out to him. They are drawn. Mm -hmm. No one is forcing them. They are drawn to John the Baptist. But when the religious leaders go out, that's when he has his really harsh words. Uh, You know, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And in previous years, I've always heard those words directed at everyone there. And not particularly, particularly at the religious leaders, um, and so I'm I'm just kicking that around. I'm asking myself, why were all those people drawn to John? Um, because he is he's he's a rough character. I mean, he's, yeah. he's he's not polished. He's not slick, uh, and yet I mean he's just very real and authentic and raw. And, and people are drawn to him. And so I don't know if that's what I'm preaching, but that's certainly the, the scripture that's on my heart and mind. Um, yeah, I think John in the Advent text is so interesting because, I, I mean, it's so weird to have John who, you know, Advent, I mean, obviously I understand that Advent is about the coming of Christ and that Christ came And that Christ is coming again and Advent is when we get ready for, you know, the fulfillment of the manifestation of Christ. I understand that. Also think, you know, we are walking towards Bethlehem. We are walking towards and anticipating the birth or remembering the anticipation of the birth. And so all of a sudden you have this story that comes from, you know, Jesus in his mid thirties and John who you know, is going to be, whose birth is going to be foretold next week to his father, Zachariah, but this week here he is and he's full grown. And I think, you know, and just this idea of, I mean, really like John's role in the gospel is so relevant to the whole discussion that we've been having all along that John, you know, is blazing onto the scene and is living in the desert and is basically saying like, I'm not going to be part of any of these systems. I'm not going to be part of the economic system. I'm not going to be a part of the um, religious system. I'm not going to be a part of the civic system. I'm going to live out here um, off of creation and nothing else um, so that I can speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which is just all of this is, is all this manufactured human righteousness is just, you know, um, it's a lie and it's offensive to God. And so he's so, you know, the greatest of the prophets in that way and calling people to say, you have more than you need and your neighbor has less and how, how dare you? And, you know, in, in real ways it is, um, you know, liberation theology right there. And so I love, I love it. I mean, everything he's saying is true. And then also knowing the end of his story when, when he comes to Christ and says, wait, you're not, you are not the ultimate liberator. And of course, I believe that Jesus is the ultimate liberator, but it is a liberation that is beyond the horizon of John's greatest vision, which is, you know, the rich and powerful getting what they deserved (laughs) and, and the poor and oppressed getting what they deserved. And that's, you know, the reset that John was longing for. And that's not, 
an evil thing to long for at all. And, and Jesus longing for something more felt like a betrayal to John. And I think, you know, just the way that the timeline of salvation just kind of folds in on itself again and again in the season of Advent, because it never feels like John belongs. And yet after all of these years in preaching the Advent texts, it now feels weird not to preach about John in, in the second week of Advent and not to sort of do the setup of like the kingdom of God comes in out of nowhere and it's ferocious and also it's beyond the capacity to understand not just of the religious leaders, but even of the most anointed prophets and like remembering Jesus's words that, you know, John is the greatest ever born of woman. And also he's the least in the kingdom of God. And that's just a really incredible um, duality to hold together. Both that we would ignore John's words at our peril. (laughs) And also we have to hold them seriously, but lightly. It's just a really incredible mind bending kind of time. So anyway, well, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, we we want to thank you all for listening to us. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida, D-E-R-I-T-A, um, you could go and worship with them at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You could check out their podcast on the Podbean website. You could check out their YouTube channel, the Derida Press YouTube channel, and you can go to their new website, which is not even new anymore. And I don't have my cheat card here, but I'm going to try Derida Prez at no, sorry, go again. Derida Church. Dang it. Dot faith life sites.com. All right. And if you want to find out more about God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, and our YouTube channel. Um, and we, and you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sundays. You could worship with us and still hit, you know, most of Yolanda's service too, if you were in the QC and you could, why wouldn't you? you? Um, so thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.